We're going to be reading uh, in Exodus chapter 3 this morning, but before we do that, I want to ask you a question to get your minds thinking. Have you ever sensed the call of God? Have you ever sensed the call of God in your life? Because in reality, if you're a Christian this morning, if you've placed your faith in Jesus for for the forgiveness of your sins, you've given Him your life to follow Him, every single one of us that have done that have the call of God upon us. Why? Because the Bible says it describes us that we are the called of God. That He has called us to Himself And that He is then calling us to do a work for Him. And we've been given the great assurance. In fact, I have this verse on a plaque in my office. It was given to me uh, as I entered into the ministry. And it's, uh, Lord willing, a a plaque that I will keep with me my entire life. It says this, 1 Thessalonians 5.24, He who calls you is faithful, who surely will do it. We have been given a calling by God. You see, not only have we been given a calling as followers of Jesus to carry out His light into this world, but in God's sovereignty and in God's wisdom, there are also very specific callings that He gives us in our individual lives. Why? Because He desires us to take part in His plans in specific ways. So you and I are all called, we have the common calling as a follower of Jesus to be giving out the Gospel, to be walking in obedience to Him, to be following Him, But yet, in the midst of that common calling that we have, we are also given very unique and specific callings in our lives. We see throughout the Bible this very truth. For instance, as we look at Adam, we saw, as we looked at God's covenants in past weeks, that God called Adam to be His representative. It was a very specific calling with which he has also, God has also given us that calling. But in God's overall plan in Scripture, in moving His plan along throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, we see that God gives then Noah a very specific calling in God's plan, doesn't He? He calls Noah to build an ark. Because God is going to cleanse the earth. He's going to judge the earth because the wickedness of mankind was so very great. He sends a flood and He calls Noah to build an ark. In the midst of His judgment, He's going to save Noah and his family. God didn't call Adam to build an ark, did He? But He called Noah. We read of Abraham that God called Abraham to leave everything he knew. Genesis 12, 1-3. He was to leave everything he knew because God had a specific calling on his life. He was moving his plan of redemption forward. And to do so, he called Abraham to separate from his pagan family. 
Likewise, with Abraham's sons, Isaac, Jacob, God then called them to God then called them to trust specifically in the promises that he gave to Abraham and now to them. In moving God's plan of redemption forward, he calls Joseph. He calls Joseph very specifically to endure despite hardship and trial. Because God was going to use the salvation that He provides through Joseph in saving His special people from the famine in the land. God was going to do something magnificent as we come to Exodus as the children of Israel grow. So as we see this plan of redemption moving forward in the Scriptures, we see that every single one of these people are called to follow God, but they are also called to follow God in very specific circumstances and ways. And so it is with us. You see, He graces He graces His people to take part in what He wants to do though He could perfectly do it Himself. Whether we realize it or not, folks, this is called an act of God's benevolent grace. That man, God could carry out His plans and His purposes and He would not need to use us, but He chooses to use us. It is His stooping down and His enabling us to be a part of what He desires to accomplish in this church, in this world. And the specific calling that God may give me as as a pastor may look differently than the calling that He has given you in, in the field that you are in or the influences that you are around. But mark it down, we are all working together to further the purposes and the plans of God. So let me ask you this morning, are you on board or are you on the bench? You see, as we begin to delve into the depths of chapter 3 of, what, of how this story progresses in Exodus, I want to ask you three questions. As you look at God's specific calling that He gives, that He places on your life, first of all, what is God calling you to today? What is it that is gnawing at you, that God has been working on your heart in, and you have been putting it off, you have been living in fear, you have not been wanting to step out, what is God calling you to today? Number two, what has your response been to this call up to this point? And number three, what will your response be to God? Notice I said, what will your response be to God? Not to, first and foremost, the specific call that He's given you. Because in order to live obediently to God... It is not a matter of, okay, I'm going to do more. I'm going to try harder. I'm just going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps, so to speak. And I'm just going to plow ahead. 
because we're for a course of destruction. But when we sense the call of God, how are we responding to the God who is calling us? Because that makes all the difference to respond to what God is calling us to. Do you get that? In order to live in response to what God calls us to, we first of all have to be responsive to who God is before we can be responsive to what he's called us to. That's why we struggle in the Christian life. We, don't, we aren't pursuing that relationship with God to know who he truly is, to be able to be strengthened, to step out in faith, to follow what God calls us to. And we're going to see in Exodus chapter 3 that God calls Moses to something very specific and very extraordinary, but he does so first and foremost because of who he is, because of who God is. And in chapter 3, we are going to look at four aspects of God's call. We're only going to look at two of those this morning. We're going to see that God's call is an act of divine initiative. God takes the initiative in His calls. It is a call of divine rescue. That when God calls us to something, it is in His plan of rescue and redemption. Number three, it's a call of divine dependence that He calls us to depend upon Him. And number four, God's call is always a call of divine hope, that we can hope in Him. And all of this is possible because of the key principle that we've been repeating together throughout this series so far. We're going to read it again together. Ready? Only God can rescue and redeem. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for who You are. Lord, we thank You for what You do in our lives. Father, we thank You that though You do not need us, You choose to use us. Father, You work through Your people. And Lord, thank You that we who have been called by Your name, we've been called to Yourself, Lord, we can walk confidently not in our own abilities or our own talents or strengths or circumstances, but Lord, we walk confidently because of who You are. Lord, would You open our hearts to be receptive to Your Word. Lord, if there is one here today that has never truly given You their lives, Lord, placed it all before You in faith and said, Lord, I am in need of a Savior that they would do so. Lord, I pray for those here that are Your followers. Lord, the Christian life is a continual process of repentance and laying down our lives afresh. Lord, I pray that You would challenge us, convict us, give us the hope to be able to lay down our lives again this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. First of all, I want to look at the call of God and to look at how the the story here in Exodus 3 shows us that the call of God is a call of divine initiative. 
God is the one who initiates his own call. And I want to look here at verses 1 to 3. Read along um, silently in your minds with me as I read. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now we first of all notice here in, the, uh, in verse 1, and we'll continue reading to verse 3, that, that this call of initiative of God, it was an, an initiative that was amidst the ordinary. There was nothing spectacular going on here. Moses is simply in the desert, in the wilderness, keeping watch of his father-in-law's flock, not even his own. What we see at the beginning of chapter 3 is that God now places Moses in a new role. The scene shifts from Egypt at the end of chapter 2 back to Midian, the wilderness of Midian in chapter 3. And it's also interesting as we read that Exodus 7.22, need we remind ourselves as Stephen is going through the history of Israel and he says this regarding where Moses came from. It says, and Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and his deeds. And now all of a sudden, in verse 1, Moses is a shepherd. It's like what one individual says, one commentator says, thus Moses, of whom Acts 7.22 says that he was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, is snatched from the Egyptian royal court and deposited on the far side of a desert mountain to tend sheep. By the way, being a shepherd, we learn from the end, at the end of Genesis, was kind of abhorrent to Egyptians. They thought, what a lowly, dirty, nasty task. And you can't tell me that wasn't in Moses' mind as he's taking care of these sheep. Man, how many times do we feel that our life is in the midst of the ordinary, and therefore, where could God be in this situation? Isn't that 90% of parenting moms being in the midst of the routine of the cleaning of dishes, the changing of diapers, uh, the going to work if you're working outside the home and trying to be a mother at the same time, and all of those difficulties. Did you realize that God is in the ordinary? You see, not only... Does God place Moses in a new role? We see in, this, in these verses that God extraordinarily appears in ordinary places. So all of a sudden, Moses is at the backside of the wilderness. He comes to Horeb, 
the mountain of God where so much of, uh, takes place in Exodus. And verse 2 says, The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. You see, here's what's special is while Moses is leading his flock, letting his flock pasture, to have pasture in the wilderness, he's right where God wants him to be. The mountain of the Lord. And at this mountain of the Lord, it is Jesus Christ Himself who appears. And how does He appear? He appears in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. I think there's really two reasons that we, that we read of, of, of this encounter and, and this fire that, that, that appears. First of all, fire is, a, is indicative of God's presence in the Bible. In other words, Jesus is present. He is here. Even in this remote place. The same Shekinah glory that would lead the children of Israel in the wilderness for those 40 years was here in the bush appearing to Moses individually. And we are promised God's presence as His people. No matter what situation we are in, Moses was not too far removed to be outside of God's grasp. Isn't that an encouragement today? But I believe that the second significance of this fire appearing in this bush is that fire is also indicative of God's purification, of God's refinement. You see, God was going to refine Moses. As, as God appears to Moses here in the wilderness, Moses would not be the same at the end of his life. Man, God was doing so much. He was going to do so much in Moses' life. So much more than simply lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. God was going to refine His people who have been in slavery for 400 years. His fire of refinement and also His fire of judgment on the Egyptians. Folks, when God calls us to Himself, when God calls us to step out in faith, He is calling us to something so much greater than achieving a simple objective of serving Him. Man, He is doing a work in your heart and in my heart refining us to be made into the image of Christ. Listen, if you're here this morning and, and you're content to just sit in church on Sunday morning and to leave and to live your life, listen, God is not doing the work of refinement that He desires to do because one of the main reason, ways God refines you is through serving Him. 
I think that I probably get the most out of these messages that I prepare than any of you get because God is using those to do something in me. And as you serve, if you are serving out of the proper motives and you are serving for the Lord, man, God is doing so much of a greater work in you than just teaching a lesson every week or, or cleaning the toilets every week or, or going out of your comfort zone to touch another brother or sister in this assembly. Man, God is doing something in you. It is one of His divine means of purifying you. Are you letting him purify you this morning or are you content to be on the bench? God extraordinary, extraordinarily appears here in ordinary places. But notice verse 3. We also see that God knows how to get Moses' attention. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. It, it, you don't quite catch the significance of Moses' statement um, in the English, but when you look at the Hebrew, there, there's this sense of intensity, of a, a volition, a desire to, I have to see what is going on here. This is something strange. Think about how excited you get when you see a bunch of, of deer out in the field, guys. Now compare that to Moses seeing this in the, in the wilderness, on a mountain, this bush that is completely unburned, yet blazing with fire. Moses is compelled. He cannot help but venture out to investigate this. Can I ask you when the last time you have been so in awe of God and what He is doing in your heart and what He is doing as you read the Scriptures and God's plan of redemption unfolding that you are in awe and you say, I must be a part of this. How can I just sit and apathetically live my life for myself? When we catch a glimpse of the awe and the glory of God, we must turn aside to see His greatness, to experience it for ourselves. How can we not? You see, God was divinely initiating an encounter with Moses. This was amidst the ordinary circumstances of now his routine, boring life in the wilderness. But not only does God present his initiative, he initiates his pursuit of us in the midst of the ordinary circumstances of life, but he initiates us to join him in something that is extraordinary. Man, the, the thought of living 70 plus years if God blesses and then to die and have it all end, man, that sounds depressing to me. Doesn't it to you? 
Doesn't it sound depressing to just say, well, we got this one shot through life, so let's give it all we've got and that because you know it's all going to come to an end. Man, I don't know about you, but I want to live for something that lasts. I don't want to wait and to just say, well, let's just, let's just eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. If I'm simply living for my children, my children will die too one day. What are we living for that lasts? And then when we realize that it is God who calls us to join Him in the extraordinary, in the eternal, what a grace, what a privilege. And I want you to notice in verse 4, the call and response that we see. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. And imagine this. If he's not in awe already, now he's hearing voices. (laughs) Moses. Moses. Have you ever wondered what it was like to be one of these Old Testament believers and to hear the voice of God you know what you don't need to wonder too far because in second Peter it says that that we have been given a more sure witness than even if we were to somehow hear God audibly like the saints of the Old Testament are you in his word How can you know God? How can you hear God's call? How can you have direction in life if you're not hearing from God? This is how we hear from God. And he calls out twice to Moses and notice the response of Moses. Here I am. One of the three most powerful words of the Bible. Going back to this call, We see that God's call is specific and direct. He he calls out to Moses twice. Moses, Moses. And you've probably heard, if you've been in church any any amount of time, uh, different preachers say, now if God says your name twice, you better listen. That is actually true. When you trace... God calling out to an individual in the Bible his name twice, it is always something that is very important and something that progresses God's plan along his timetable of what he is doing, his plan of redemption. I just want to quickly give you the times that that God has called out twice to individuals. The first time we see this is Genesis 22, verse 11. God calls out to Abraham as he is sacrificing his son. The knife is in the air, and he says, Abraham, Abraham, do not slay your son. Boy, that was an important one to heed, right? A lamb, a ram has been provided, caught in the bushes. In Genesis 46, verse 2, God calls out to Jacob and says, Jacob, Jacob, do not be afraid to go into Egypt. This is all according to my plan. God was directing His people to find refuge in Egypt. 
We see the third occasion right here in our text in Exodus 3-4. We again read of this double call in 1 Samuel 3-10. You're all familiar. Samuel hears God calling out to him. He thinks it's Eli. And God calls out, Samuel, Samuel. And he tells him what he is about to do to the house of Eli because he is not conducting his family, his sons who are priests, he is not reflecting the holiness of God. They are profaning his name. In Luke 10, verse 41, we move to the New Testament. Uh, We just looked at Mary and Martha. Martha's uh, busily involved in so much, she has forgotten that which is foundational to to sit at Jesus' feet, to long for Him, not by doing, but by being. And He says, Martha, Martha, you're troubled and worried about many things, but Mary has chosen that which is best. In Luke 22, verse 31, Simon Peter He boasts in his own confidence that that though everyone else will betray you, Lord, I will be with you. And what does he say? Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. Perhaps the most powerful double call was Jesus on the cross in Matthew 27, 46 when he calls out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was willing to be forsaken so that we would never be forsaken. And then the last occurrence of this is in Acts 9.4 where Saul, who would later his name would be changed to Paul, he is out on a mission to kill Christians and he sees that Shekinah glory, that, that bright glory emanating from heaven from God. And God calls out to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Every single one of these addresses are life-changing. And so it would be with Moses. We see that just as God's call is specific and direct, so is Moses' response specific and direct. He says, here I am. Literally, if you read that, you would read, he says, behold me. In other words, he is offering himself. You have my attention, Lord. What do you desire to tell me? And again, we read this here am I throughout the Bible in such important ways. When God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son, he says at the beginning of Genesis 22, here I am. When he has the knife up and and God says, Abraham, Abraham, don't slay your son. We read his response, here I am. We read of this in Isaiah 6 verse 8. When the angel cries out from the throne room of God, whom shall, or God cries out, whom shall I send? Who will go for me? What does Isaiah says? Here I am. Send me. You see, what we 
read of an application of this here I am statement, it is always meant to be a response that is characterized by attentiveness and obedience. Which is, by the way, going to make this very ironic, as we're going to see next week. As Moses says, here I am. And then later in the chapter, he says, send someone else. Can I ask you today, are you, in your heart of hearts, is your heart's attitude, here I am God? Or is your attitude taking out the here and the am, and you're just left with I? It's about me. It's about my comfort. It's about my schedule. It's about my agenda. It's about my ease. It's about me. We see the call and response that God initiates in verse 4. And then in verse 5, as Moses is approaching this burning bush, God calls out again to him and he says, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. What we see in verse 5 is an invitation into God's presence. You see, in order for God, in order for us to be joined in what God is doing in an extraordinary fashion, we may not see it and feel it, but we know that God is going to redeem His people. He is going to redeem this world. And He is, he is on mission to do that. And He calls us to Himself. What that requires is God's beckoning call that we come to Him and also the ability to stand in God's presence. You see, there was a holy separation between God and man. Moses could not come simply as he was. He had to take his sandals off his feet because the very area where God was located was holy. Later in Exodus, you read about this holiness of God on the mountain when God takes Israel out of Egypt. He, they're once again on, Mount, uh, on the mountain of God, on Mount Horeb. And what happens? There has to be a barrier between where God is and where the people are lest they touch the mountain and die. We read of, of God uh, commanding the people to construct a tabernacle for Him so that God's presence could dwell amongst the people, but the people better not go into God's presence lest they die. And here we see just a hint of this as, Mo as Moses is commanded to take off his sandals. You see, what we have is both a warning that no one can just approach God because we're sinners. But we also have hope that God is now again taking initiative to interact in a new way with His people. That they have been kicked out of God's presence when, when mankind was kicked out of God's presence when they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. 
But God is now saying, I am continuing my plan of redemption. I want to dwell with my people. Here's the beginning stages of this. And praise God that we now know that we have the perfect sacrifice, Jesus. That because we have been eternally cleansed by the blood of Jesus, we now, through Jesus, can approach God without fear of death. Amen? That while it is still in awe, a a fearful thing when we think of the greatness of God, we know God not just to be judge, but to be Savior. And we approach His throne in gratefulness and awe and wonder at what He has done and how mighty He is, and yet He brings us to Himself. Man, if that doesn't inspire the idea of privilege and identity, if it doesn't stem from what Jesus has done, then nothing else will truly give us that. Not only does God invite Moses into his presence as a picture of what God would ultimately accomplish through Jesus. But God introduces himself to Moses. Look at verse 6. God says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. God introduces himself. Moses, after living in Egypt, after being in the wilderness, he has a foundation, we know, uh, of, of who God is based upon uh, the, his upbringing that Jochebed was allowed to, to take care of him till he was old enough to be weaned, probably about three years of age. So he heard these, these uh, foundational truths of, of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it was not yet experienced personally. Folks, we can't live off the, the faith and the understanding of God based upon what a preacher says or what a parent says or what a friend says. If your spiritual sustenance is based upon what other people say, you really have no sustenance at all. We gather Sunday morning not so that you can get a week full of spiritual nutrition. No, we gather together as the climactic point of our week as a taste of eternity so that then you are further encouraged as we become the church scattered to keep going, to keep the faith, to walk in obedience to the Lord, knowing that you have other brothers and sisters who are here that are praying for you, that are in the same boat as you, and we can worship Him together.
Folks, the Sunday morning service is not the emergency room. It is your annual checkup. Should I say your weekly checkup? And Moses encounters this majesty of God. God says, in essence, who I have always been, I still am. And Moses' response at the end of verse 6 is brokenness. He hides his face. He was afraid to look at God. Why? Because he now has a direct encounter with God and he sees the magnificence of God compared with the brokenness, the smallness of himself. And I'm convinced this morning that one of my greatest problems and one of your greatest problems is we forget the brokenness and smallness of self. Most of us serve a small God in a big self. When every page of the Bible is filled with the opposite truth, a big God in a small self. God's call is one of divine initiative. Listen, it's not the noble, it's not the mighty that God calls, the book of 1 Corinthians tells us. I mean, praise the Lord for that because none of us would be called. <laughs> none of us. We may, we may appear mighty upon, in man's standards. You have a degree, you have a certain job, you have a certain amount of money in your bank account, that all seems great. None of that matters to God. But God calls those that are weak. God initiates that call. It is not what He sees in us. It is what He desires to show us. That is why He calls us. And this call of divine initiative quickly then becomes, number two, as we uh, close out this morning, a call of divine rescue. Even as believers, would God just simply be content to leave us as he found us, we would be down a path of destruction. But God, he takes what he owns and he works it and he reworks it and he molds it and he gives it an objective and a mission and he continually works on us because his very call is a continued call of rescue every day of our lives. I don't know about you, but I am still in need of rescue from myself. Aren't you? And he presents us with this call of divine rescue and verses 7-9 to nine show us that God will indeed rescue His people. Verse 7 says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of My people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I, I know, get that, look at all of the eyes. I've surely seen, verse 7. He's heard their cry. I know their sufferings, verse 8. 
I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Notice the attentive description because God is in tune with the people's circumstances, pain, and needs. He is not uncaring to the circumstances, the pain, the needs of His people. He is attentive to those things. Notice the, the, the attentive description. He has seen. In fact, this is uh, in the original languages, this is put as emphatic. And that's why in the English it says, I have surely seen. In other words, make no doubt about it. This has not passed my attention. Though it has gone on for 400 years. It also says that he has heard their cries of help. As they call out, who will deliver us? God hears those calls. And notice also he says, I know. I know their sufferings. This idea of to know, it's used uh, not simply in a knowledge sense, but it's used in an intimate acquaintance with something. He knows the suffering they are enduring because He has been enduring it with them. This, pain, this word, suffering, by the way, has the idea of both physical and mental distress. It can, it can involve either one depending on the context. God knows what you are going through. So much of suffering so many times is mental, emotional. God is aware. But what good is it to be aware of something and not to act? Sometimes, the best thing we can say is, hey, I am praying for you. Sometimes the worst thing we can say is, I am praying for you, when like James says, God has put it in our hands to help that person. If we have the ability to help a brother or sister, and we just are content to say, I'll be praying for you, that's not much of a help, is it? When God has already provided the means for that help, but you see, our God is not like that. Not only does He know, but He promises to act. God says, I am going in verse 8 to deliver them. Out of the hand of the Egyptians. He is going to snatch them out of the Egyptians' mighty grasp. The most powerful nation in the world at that time. And as Isaiah says, He's going to hold them in His powerful, mighty hand. 
Not only that, but he is going to fulfill the promises that he made hundreds of years before, just like he said in verse 6 to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because it says in verse 8, I'm going to not only deliver them out of the Egyptians, but I am going to give them something. I'm going to give them a land. I'm going to bring them to a good and broad land. You know what he's, what, what image? Moses, as he pens these words, is trying to give to his reader back at creation. The land, Genesis 1 says, in in every facet of God's creation, it was what? Good. And he says, I am going to take them out of this land and I am going to give them back that good land. You see, God is doing something new. He is moving. He is advancing His plan of redemption. Not only that, but He says here that He is going to take this land from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, all of these ites, This is something that could not come from the hand of themselves. This is something that must come from the hand of God. This was a judgment on the sins of these nations. This is a judgment on rebellion against God. God is doing a redeeming act. And then we read that he reiterates his understanding of the people's circumstances. Just to be sure that Moses knows, verse 9 The cry of the people of Israel has come to me. I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. But then we come to verse 10 where we will close. Now notice this, all right? Drum roll, please. Zach, where where are you, Zach? (laughs) Verse 10 says, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you might bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Can you hear Moses? Whoa, what, what? God, I'm getting excited here because you're telling me all these things that that you are going to do for your people. And remember back in chapter 2, I tried to kind of be a deliverer for, for Israel when I killed that Egyptian slave, and it didn't do too good for me. I had to run out of Egypt. So, all right, God, you are going to do this. And then God turns around the table and says, you know how I'm going to do this? I'm going to send you. You see, Moses would mediate God's rescue. We notice here the transition from God to Moses. But what we also have to notice here, and again, Moses is a picture of Jesus who brings about God's salvation. That is the ultimate picture that's presented here, but we also have to see the personal picture that is presented here. 
that we have to notice the pattern in God's redemptive history, in God's plan of how He redeems, that God uses people to accomplish His will. It's easy to say, you know what, I hope Covington Baptist Church, for instance, does great things for God, does great things in Tioga County, does great things to one another in this body. It is an entirely different thing to say, God, that is my prayer, that is what I know your desire is, now what do you want me to do? God, here I am. Send me. Listen, if you have been here for a length of time and and you are still simply coming to church on Sunday morning, that is not what God has called you to. That is not what we are about as a church. We are about getting on mission for God and doing something for Him. I like what one commentator says, Moses is the means by which God will work His own redemptive strength. Listen, when we serve God, it is not to be out of our own resources, our own strength. Moses was simply mirroring who God was. He was allowing himself And we will see next week, however unwillingly, he was allowing himself to be used by God. Are you doing the same? Or is it all about, and I don't want to take too much from next week, is it all about excuses and weaknesses and inabilities and the why I can't, and all of those things. And it has nothing to do with who your God is. Let's pray.